everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Equality in Business podcast, our podcast to create awareness about equality in the business world by actively engaging students about relevant topics in a professional manner. My name is Itana Gopicha, and I am a first-year master's master student at Catalica Lisbon. Today's episode will be a little different from usual, and will focus on education and inclusion in Nigeria with Chosin Adini, who founded the Not Forgotten Initiative School, a learning center in Abuja that provides free access to education to vulnerable children. A very warm welcome to you, Tosin, and thank you for being here with us today. Shall we get started? We would like to start with a little ritual. At the end of at the end of each podcast episode, our guests ask a question related to equality to our next guest. In our last episode, we spoke with Margarita Calado from Everest. The question Margarita left for you was, how do you think one can guarantee quality is embedded in the mindset and culture of a company and reflected in all its processes instead of isolated? Thank you so much. That's a very good question. The word guarantee um, might not necessarily be what I'll be talking about, but um, I believe that we can make positive attempt to achieving that um, quality in the culture of an organization. And that ways that we can do that is by having interactions. So knowledge is very important that we communicate effectively the culture of the organization in ways that are relatable to the people in the organization. So it's it's important that we have campaigns. It's also very important that management also um, lead from the front. So the quality you expect to trickle down in the organization should be seen in the quality of administration of the organization. So meaning that um, as, as um, a leader or as... Um, uh, uh, people in position in organization, we need to be the first. The change must start with us. People learn more from what they see, the model before them, than what the policy, company policy says, or what um, the company expects from the employees. So, Guarantee is not um, what I'm going to talk about, but I think if we make efforts as um, leaders and managers of organizations to model the example that we want to see in terms of um, service delivery, that way, in terms of the level of tolerance that we have as organization for certain behavior. So if we say this behavior is not acceptable, we must ensure that... um, we are also not engaging in it as leaders directly or indirectly. So people can learn from that. If organizations are led by disciplined people, people of integrity, people that believe in the fair play and equality, certainly it will trickle down in the organization. Thank you so much for the insightful response it's definitely um, definitely like the culture or the uh, like the attitudes of the company they just just trickle down to like the employees so that's great thank you so much 
So can you tell us a little bit more about Not Forgotten Initiative School? What motivated you to open it in 2019? The motivation was the the need has need, like I said, the need has been there for over 10 years before we started. The children were giving birth to while whilst living in that community. Mm-hmm. And we have, the closest thing we have done with them as a family is to give them tangibles at the end of the year, the Christmas spirit, give them tangibles and occasionally just wave at them. Mm-hmm. But on a certain day, I had the nudging of the spirit of God saying, you person, you need to do more, giving them temporary comfort. So do something more. Um, lasting, which in in the in the conversation I had with in as the Holy Spirit was talking to me was to open a school for them. Yeah. So I approached one of their parents because they were predominantly Muslims before NFI started. My my notion was that they don't believe in education in in Western education because I see the kids go to Islamia to learn the Islamic. Um, for Islamic studies, but mm-hmm. not to um, um, standard schools. So I asked, I approached the parents and asked a question. If we open a school, would you allow your children to come? And this was a man who is um, a, a security guard in an uncompleted um, building. He said, his response to me was that, oh, certainly, yes. He would happily bring his children. This man has five children. He said he will happily bring them. The only reason why they're not in school is because they cannot afford to send them. Mm-hmm. And we also had a few around, few instances where I I had an interaction with one of the women and she, she said, uh, challenge is to have a son go to school, her oldest son. She wasn't even bothered about the younger ones. I mean, when I say younger ones now, these ones were around maybe eight years old, nine years old, seven and six. She mm-hmm. was, she has about six children. She wanted her older son who was then about 14 years old, there about, or 15. He wanted him to go to school. She wanted him to go to school. So with this um, need from these responses from the parent. And the nudging of the Holy Spirit, which was what prompted the conversation, we started um, with an agreement. I said to them, you build the structure, I'll provide the teachers and the necessary resources. And they agreed to that. They started, but of course, because of the lack of funds, they couldn't do much. So by the 6th of December 2019, I went and got um, used planks, used wood, used boards, and we're able to put up something um, fairly better than where they were, I mean, where they live, which is popularly known as bacha, I mean, like a shop. Mm-hmm. And we put something up, and we started with 14 children, and they were so excited. They were eager to learn. They wanted to know. The interesting thing is that after we start, after they started learning one, two, three, one, two, three, the, the numbers, they started writing on the walls, all around the area, all the walls of uncompleted beauty. The kids are there writing with charcoal. 
they started writing. They were excited to write. They were excited to, you know, to learn. Yeah. And you, I mean, all around the world, they had charcoals written in numbers. And um, that was how the journey started. Rust in 2019, December by January. We had one teacher teaching the 14 children. Then we expanded. We got a second teacher. And then today, we're where we are. It's great news. And um, why is education so important to you? I, I wouldn't say education is so important to me, given the, the background, how we started. Mm-hmm. But along the line, I, ha- I, I had a conversation with someone about the school because I wasn't even sure if... Because it became like something really meaningful to the children. So I wasn't even sure how to... Where, where to place it, how to continue, how to accommodate much. I wasn't even sure on what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, the kids were excited, we were, you know, they were having fun, but I, in my in my own mind, I wasn't, I wasn't very clear about what was going on because I wasn't sure, are we running a school? I didn't know, what, what, what was all of this about, really? Mm-hmm. Where are we taking it to? Are they, are we doing... So I went to have a conversation with one of my mentors. And he said to me, he said, Jose, you have got everything that it, that you need to run the school, which is passion. So when he said passion, because I told him I'm not even experienced in, in managing this. I'm a chartered accountant. But... Thinking back, so what was the driving force for that passion? I'm dyslexic. And because of dyslexia, I have had to continually having to study. I've gone back to school. I've gone seeking help for myself. Mm -hmm. So I guess because of my sense of getting what I have lost or what I don't have. Mm -hmm. I think I feel very, very strong helping a child who is so young, who can still learn, who can, who can, if if given the right tools, can overcome the hurdles of reading and writing. So I think if you say that, why am I so interested? I think it's because of my own pain, mm-hmm. my own story, my own journey. It's been very hard for me. So that has continuously and constantly kept me in search for help. Now I have these young ones who can be helped early. So I am very interested. I'm happy. Um willing to do whatever is within my this young one so that um they don't go through what i've been through that i guess is the passion i guess it, that is the 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 point of um compassion for them that you know if we can if i can help you so that you don't um also have to go through all of this so i guess that's about it thank you that's yeah like your past experiences like you don't want the next generation to go through what you went through right and so can you share what the admissions process is for parents who wish to enroll their children at nfi and 
what sort of challenges did students face when the school initially opened? Enrollment has um, taken many turns. When we started, the criteria for admission then was families living around the school, mm-hmm. or families living in shacks, living in batches. So you must be parent that cannot truly afford um, to send your kids to school because one of the characteristics of um, the parents in those uh, kind of housing is that they have many children so and they are usually menial workers they, I mean they, they do menial jobs so they have some of them have multiple wives so and they have many children so they are not able to afford to send them to school so that was the basic um, criteria. That was the qualification Mm -hmm. for accepting their child into the school. And what we've done with them is to absorb all of their children. So some of them have like four or five. So we take all the four or all the five. I mean, as the case may be, except of course, for some of them who still have maybe younger children. But we realized that um, we weren't also um, helping uh, families that are living maybe fewer kilometers away because news went around quickly and many more parents were bringing their children. So we needed to um, streamline the, 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 the rate of absorption in order to be able to um, maintain the quality that mm-hmm. we were offering, I mean, which was basic, the quality was basic. So so what we did was to then open a register. So when you come in, you you put your child's name down. Even if you live close by, you, you, you write out your name, you give us your details. And um, when is admission time, what we look for, what we look out for is um, the ages of the children. In our primary four now, we have some kids that are 13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. In our primary four, in our primary one, we have some that are, some children are like 10 years old. So we didn't want that also to come in a way. So what we started um, doing was to look ages of children that are between four and five. For example, some families with four or five names, some children are ready to. There was, I wasn't interested in those. When we started, we were taking a focus to have like an age appropriate. Uh, for the past um, two admissions, two sets of admissions that we've done, admit children um, based on their age range now. Because, like I said, we want them to start from uh, elementary, which is the nursery one, mm-hmm. and then move on to the higher classes so as much as possible we discourage admitting midstream or admitting children into uh current classes meaning that if you have not done nursery school with us we don't really want to put you into our primary school Mm -hmm. and the reason is because of the methods that we're using like we're using jolly phonics so we want the children to be able to read before they get to primary school for some cases, they bring children to us that are probably in primary four in government school, and they can't even read three-letter words. They're already in primary four, primary five, and they can't read. 
most cases they are already like 12 13 mm -hmm. so it's difficult to take that child to nursery one sometimes we we'll put them in primary one like we have two cases now in primary one they're 14 one is 14 i think one is 13 but we don't like i'm not happy to do that i'm not happy to do that. but they can reach i can't put them in classes where teachers has to still reach to them you know so mm -hmm. what admission has been we've streamlined it it's, it's stricter now so you, you you don't automatically because you meet the the, the preconditions yeah. doesn't give you automatic admission no not anymore not anymore in the past we were doing that but now it's strict it's very strict and the children would have to go through interviews and all of that and the parents as well because mm -hmm. we also realized that there were some parents who could afford to send their kids to school but who um notion you know like this is free and is good quality is is better quality mm -hmm. so they want to come so for such parents we technically tell them well except your child is picked so you have to they, they parent has to wait for another cycle of um, um admission exercise which is now yearly yeah in the past you can bring the child anytime but now no we only admit in September okay um and are there specific challenges that might hinder their the education once the school year has started and if yes how does NFI address these kinds of situations so far the children's we have worked with they're not the they're special kids i mean when i say special kids most of them have we have um a system that offers help to children who we believe are already challenged so there isn't any clear court um special challenge because our, our model is even a, a, a model that is not the regular, you know? So these kids are coming at age 10, never been to school, never held a pencil, never read a word. They only speak Hausa interviews, you know? So what challenges do they have? Language, communication. They can't speak English. They settle in over the year, over, over a term or two. They start picking vocabularies. We, we do um, movies for them. So mm -hmm. we, we use educational tools to get them, help them with the hurdle of language. I think for me, most the most visible challenge is language, is communication. Yeah. They write, they read, and um, they're doing well. That's good to hear that they're able to overcome the language barrier. Yeah, then whenever we support um, special need, like um we had like two two of our students who for some reasons were not able to read at their level they were not able to cope with the the, the what what was required of them at the level mm -hmm. we have had to downgrade some children so that's another matter if the teacher um gives all the support they can offer the child. And as a school, we don't have specially skilled teachers. We have good teachers with good heart doing their doing their best. Mm -hmm. But we've had cases where a child is in nursery two and she's 
she's been taught numbers for a year, a school year, a whole school year she's in nursery two, and she still could not, I mean, she, still, she, she was still struggling, two of them were still struggling with the sequence of numbers one to 10. Mm -hmm. In that case, we had to take them back a lower class mm -hmm. where they are able to um, relearn and then we have um, instances they get into those classes they relearn and um, they come out doing i mean they've done well yeah with that kind of um steps by by us taking that kind of step well help the children and because again every is a free school parents are not also very um insisting that's what we've been able to um, do in instances where we see, um, where we have seen challenges with the children mm -hmm. um, learning at their level, we've had to downgrade after um, as a last resort. Okay. And um, how many students do you have enrolled now? And what sort of programs or initiatives do you have for children and teenagers enrolled? We have um, 71 children. Wow. And um, we have about um, 17 young adults. Mm -hmm. the, the children's program is basically learning literacy and numbers, learning their literacy, learning their numbers. When you say programs, we it's strictly educational programs, mm -hmm. which is, but aside from the traditional learning, we also have um, clubs where the children, um, where they engage in vocational activities mm -hmm. like cookery, like um, soap making, like um, debating, dance and drama, and a few others. Those are essentially the programs we run for the children. So they're in school Monday to Friday from 7.30 to 2.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. learning their numeracy and literacy and um, all of that. For the young adults, we have about 17 of them, but most of them are on a scholarship. They are in government secondary school. Okay. Two are in private secondary school. And um, we run um, a scholarship program for them. Some of them are on full scholarship. Some of them are on partial scholarship and some of them are not on a scholarship at all because their parents can afford to keep them in the government school. And mm -hmm. uh, um, we, we, we also run educational assistance for them. We do like um, evening classes, but we haven't done that in a while. But we do homework support, research. So mm -hmm. if they have homework and they need to do um, internet um, research, printing, and all of that, we give them the support. So we we provide them with um, counseling. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, we do counseling with the 17 young adults. But in the past, we were doing um, daily tutorials for them but we have not been able to do that because of um human resource challenges we've not been able to do that in the past in the last few months but um essentially that's what we do with the um older ones so 
they are in their schools, but on our scholarship. And then um, we'll give them all the necessary guidance. That is very good to hear that they're like that, like there are resources for the older kids and also for the younger ones. It's very nice. Thank you. Um, and so according to the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund, about 10.5 million Nigerian school children aged 5 to 14 years are not in school. Why is education inclusion so important in Nigeria? Yeah, because of human capacity. I mean, human resource capacity. You you want to have a, a, a population of skilled people, mm -hmm. educated people, not illiterates, to stop the cycle of poverty. Yeah. Because they can, they can question anything. Mm -hmm. They can ask you, do this, why? Why should I do it? Yeah. Because that's yeah. what education is like light. You, you, you remove the veil. So they're able to think for themselves. So they're able to take better decisions. They're able to also transform their communities. They're able to accomplish a lot for themselves, for their families, and for the nation at large. So it's very important that you never know. Maybe the next um, 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 Stephen Jobs is among one of those ones. Mm -hmm. Not given the opportunity. So if you give them the opportunity, you you really would be amazed. I mean, we've seen cases with our children, children who were popping and popping up and down trees, running around. Today they are reading. We have a very good one. Abdullah. Abdullah is in love with books. Abdullah mm -hmm. at ten had never been to school. You know, so it's it's a lot of human capacity for 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 us as a lady. I will come back to um the success stories, but like when you brought up Abdullah, I was like, oh my goodness! Like I remember, like he was like he's yeah. like he's so passionate about um education and just learning, and I'm like I'm thinking back right. on like volunteering yeah. over the summer and how he just was like like he picked mm -hmm. up French and Spanish so easily, and I was like, oh my goodness! Like my yeah. heart. So how or what can the Nigerian government do to make sure? less privileged children aren't trailing behind in education? I, I, I feel a lot of um, campaign for, for children, in particularly, I think, in the North, for, for girls, girl child in the North. Mm -hmm. I think government need to do more campaign. We can help their parents think better. If you model successful Muslim women before those children mm -hmm. so that they can begin to dream. So I think a lot of campaign. I also think a lot of um, funding of the LEAs, the government schools, training and retraining of teachers, mm -hmm provision of um, resources for teaching and for learning, general encouragement in that sector would um, boost public school system mm -hmm. and um, also indirectly reflect on the children. Because if you go to some government schools, 
you will find in a class 70, 90, 105 children in a cramped, in a small space. Mm -hmm. Some of them with tables and chairs, some of them without. Some of them, their teachers are not motivated. So I think a lot of programs for the teachers, training the trainers themselves. The teachers are not motivated to teach. Some of them are also not qualified. So you, you only give what you have. If you don't have it, how can you give it? Mm -hmm. Some of these teachers are not qualified. They, they were just hired based on nepotism and all of that. Yeah. So government needs to be deliberate in revamping that sector. Because there are some public schools, the structure is there, as in the physical structure of blocks, but there aren't furnitures inside the classroom. Mm -hmm. Some of them, the, the furnitures are broken down, you know? So it's, 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 a, it's a systemic thing. The teachers are never there, and when they come, they just do the barest minimum. Governments can do more deliberately in ensuring that the classroom functions. Because even in private school, you have to be on your tools as a school administrator to ensure that things have been done yeah. properly in the classroom with strict supervision. Now imagine classroom, government school classroom, where there is minimal supervision. But you might not get much except, of course, maybe the particular teacher, a few of them who are very passionate about what they're doing. If not, they don't go to the work. The days they go, they do the minimum. So the kids don't get to learn anything mm -hmm. at the end of the day. They leave the children to themselves. Because again, how can you explain it? A class of a hundred plus without microphone, and you have to be screaming. Yeah. You have to mark all their work. How can you, how can you mark as one teacher, mark a hundred and one or a hundred and five people's math exercise in one day? And you have to teach them math the next day. That's not realistic. I've been a classroom teacher. It's not realistic. The classes are too large. Anything beyond 25 is is overstretching the capacity of a teacher. Because you have to teach, you have to write, you have to map, you have to do all of that. You have to look at the children, observe them. You can't do that with a hundred plus or even with 40. But you go to some of these government schools, you find hundred people in a class with one thing, with one teacher in a primary school. It's not effective at all. So things need to be done. Maybe build more schools in those localities. Build more schools. Motivate the teachers more. Provide them with current day um, tools to work. And um, there would be certainly, I mean, hopefully the difference. So reoriented because yeah. there need to be a paradigm shift you know how people work for government and they feel it's nobody's father's job <laughs> i'm not going to kill myself on this job ah, they, yes. so that that orientation was you know there must be a paradigm shift that no this this one is not like every other government work. this is molding tomorrow's leaders the people that are going to take over government tomorrow people that are going to take over industries tomorrow we have to prepare them so we need to put in quality in them so that they can do better job when they grow older so if you if you make the teachers see um the, the reason why they must do the right now i guess it would um 
also um, boost the morale of the teachers and it will translate to better improved performance in the classroom mm -hmm. and um, good results for the children on the children that that's such a brilliant answer like you've touched on the things that are that aren't the best about the Nigerian education system and what is lacking and how the government can um address it so hopefully in the future um even now in the present like the government just realizes how important education is and how it builds up like the future so thank you for that um and how can people outside nigeria support nfi thank you very much for that question what i usually say and um, and, and i mean it seriously is that um one way you can help nfi is by creating one in wherever country you're in mm -hmm. starting one or supporting one that is already in 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 existence yeah you were part of nfi's story you came in i mean regardless of how busy your work schedule was then you intentionally gave us your time you gave us your skill that is one way people can support the nfi story nfi stories it was an accidental project it didn't there was no plan there was no nothing we just started you know, there was no structure. So that's one way you can support NFI. Volunteer, send us. I tell people if you have books, storybooks in particular, mm -hmm. send us storybooks, send us educational materials, send us whatever, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever you have. I mean, we've had cases of people sending us financial, financial resources. But we've never canvassed for it, and we will never do that. For now, we, mm -hmm. we don't. Um, so we don't ask people for financial support and all that. Okay. But we have had people send us clothes. The kids, I mean, you were with us during summer school. Some of the things the resource people said was that um, the children wear tattered clothes, and I said, "Well, in summer school, we're not used. That's why." The, we, we we initiated the uniform idea, mm -hmm. you know, we started giving them free uniforms because they were coming in that clothes, they were coming in um, bathroom sleepers. So you can send them clothes, you can send them shoes, you can, you can also be a big brother, a big sister to them. Mm -hmm. And check on them, see how they're doing, tell them in things about the country where you live and then uh, charge them and mm -hmm. also build hope in them inspire them tell them one day you're going to come and see me in person the COVID-19 pandemic um, affected and revealed gaps in the Nigerian education system how did NFI react and, and adapt to the change thank you very much for that question interestingly during <clears throat> The initial stage of COVID from March to about um, May, mm -hmm. where um, going to houses, uh, proposed houses with um, workshops. So we dry, so myself and my team will make um, workshops and um, take it to the children in their homes. But we realized that um, they weren't giving us, the feedback was poor. Some of the things they knew before the pandemic, 
that we're very comfortable with, I mean, confident in some number work, some literacy work, that we're confident in, they were, they were, they were um, not performing very well. And um, given their setting, most of them don't have people around that they can ask for help. People around them are illiterate, so they're not able to continue learning mm -hmm. during COVID. So um, by the 4th of June, 2020, we started what we called the Learning in the Woods project, which is um, we got the kids to come in and clear a certain particular area, not too far from, very close to the school, that had lots of trees. So we cleared that area and um, we started what's um, a project of Learning in the Woods, whereby the children come in in the morning and um, they sit under the trees. And because it's a wild expanse of land, they were able to sit um, apart. Mm -hmm. They were able to sit um, away apart. So there was social distancing. And um, we started teaching them up until October when the ban was lifted and then um, we go back to classrooms. So we were able to learn during the, the pandemic not immediately, mm -hmm. but from the 4th of June, we launched the Learn in the Woods program and um, we were able to run the program successfully up until October when schools were allowed to reopen. And um, thankfully, we had um, a lady donated um, the 3 in 1 protective kit. Mm -hmm that had hand sanitizer, face mask, and face shield. And the kids were so excited. So mm -hmm. they had that on as well. And a lot of education, we taught them to wash their hands regularly, to social distance. And to be honest with you, they're kind of certain, of course, didn't even give room for all of that. All through the pandemic, they were still playing together because really school gave them we were very happy to come back and uh, we were happy to also engage them again. And that has been the story since pandemic. Now we still encourage washing of hands and all that. And what has been the most valuable lesson you've learned from your students over the years? Can you give us some examples? The valuable lesson I've um, learned really that I've talked with me is the transformation in some of our children made it very clear of course i knew that before mm -hmm. but i, I mean I, i've never been that close to how systematic lane of knowledge can reshape the mind of a young person mm -hmm. i'll give you an example when we got the set that came in last year february we admitted a new set of children last year february 2008 20 February, shortly before the pandemic. When they came in, remember that we have worked with the older kids for about a year plus before this new set came in. And on a particular day, we were serving because of the free, the, the, the launch, one, one a day meal that we program we also run. It was their turn to eat. So we brought in the food for this new set of kids and um, they had been given, I mean, distributed the food to them. So it was time to give them water. And these kids were like pushing and 
running over one another. So the older ones who had been with us, I heard girls said to them, she was telling them, calm down. <laughs> calm down. The water we go around, we have enough food. We have enough. They were scrambling to get the food and the water and everything. And she was like, but when they came in, Ethan, mm-hmm. if they need to collect, so if one is writing with pencil, the first set, take for example, a, a, a young boy is writing and he probably has the school eraser with it because we provide them with stationery. And another one needs, another child needs to um, ask for that eraser. The child can just walk from his table to another child's table and just pick the eraser. Or maybe the pencil has the eraser. You know, those pencils with eraser. Yeah. Whatever. It is expected that if you need to ask for something, you should be polite and say, may I have another? When we started, my a, another child will come to a child's table and pick something. And the next thing, the child will just throw a blow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, the first day I saw it, I told the teacher, I said, ah, you are not teaching these children good behavior. <laughs> she said, man, don't worry. Don't worry about it. You know, they will, don't worry. They will, they will, they will. It's not an issue. I'm like, no. And the one, you know, it's not like, you give me a blow and I walk away. No, you mm-hmm. will retaliate immediately. <laughs> Over, eraser. <laughs> but today, my kids are so normalized. They will be like, "May I have, please, uh, Mrs. A? Can you ask this one to give me something?" He's refusing. <laughs> they can talk. They don't have to be physical, mm-hmm. you know. So when these other ones came and they're scrambling over, they were like. Now we have been off. So, I mean, such good behavior. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so sweet to see that um, these children are able to put up, they have learned those behaviors and they're able to practice it. And um, I mean, in, in, in terms of language, most of them are interviewed at the, at the entry stage was with an interpreter, with the support of an interpreter, but not anymore. Mm-hmm. Except maybe our nursery one, few of our nursery one kids still struggle with um, words in English. They are still like all Awusa, but only a few, only a few. So I have seen that and it's it's a thing of joy for me. It, one of our parents called me um, about a week ago and um, because the man is our school janitor, he lives next to the school, so he called wanting to tell me that um, one of the doors broke down because of the wild, um, the wind. Mm-hmm. And immediately he called, I, 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 I wasn't with my phone when he called, so I called back. When I called him back, calling out his son's name to come and talk to me, because of course he still cannot speak English. Mm-hmm. But this is son who also started out with not being able to say anything, he was the one that spoke with me and said, Ma, there was a white wind, the door is broken. My dad is calling to let you know because um, what rainwater is going to enter the classroom. Mm-hmm. I was really happy. <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh, this dad, if he had, uh, if we had an adult education, maybe he would have learned. Mm-hmm. But he's happy to call his son to come and talk to me because I don't speak outside, not yet went outside, you know. so. These are some of the things that um, 
has happened in the space of less than three years that we have worked with the children uh that gives me joy when i see the the behavior of the children they don't they no longer hit themselves <laughs> to get stationaries they, they, some of them they're very careful with the school materials their books everything is neatly packed yeah no these were things that when they then when they when they when we started their books rough dirty we didn't have a school toilet because they were using i mean like I said, they go into the bush to do the natural things, but we had to build the school toilet. And when we started, we didn't have a toilet. So they will go, they'll come back with dirty hands, books were dirty and all that. But now we have water for you to wash your hands each time you go to the toilet, you have to wash your hands before coming. So books are clean, the children are clean. They don't have, they used to have a lot of skin, particularly the boys, they used to have a lot of skin rash on their hair on their head but um, all all of those have um, minimized mm -hmm. a few of them still have so it's like normalization in terms of behavior in terms of learning and um i mean that's for me that's what the school is all about mm -hmm. so we're happy with what um the transformation taking place in the lives of the children yeah, and like I just want to add, um, again, like what you're saying is just bringing back memories to my volunteering over the summer, and right, I remember right. I, I I was teaching a class, and um, one and like a group of little kids just came and like disrupted my class, and were like, "Teacher, teacher, um, somebody is like biting people." Um, uh -huh. <laughs> so like, so like, um, they, so like, yeah, like five or six kids just came up to me and were like, uh -huh. we uh -huh. have someone biting someone. Can you punish them? Or like, can you talk to them? <laughs> and so I would just like put them in like a timeout and just like try to, at, um, re reason with them and just like find out why they are biting. Um, uh -huh. characteristics that the children display now. In the past, they would have been fighting. Mm -hmm. They would have been hitting themselves. And trust me, those kind of what you call violence is for them is normal. Mm -hmm. What is well, <laughs> they would have been, you know. But now, to a large extent, they are normalized. Yeah, and um, so to conclude, um, could you share a success story of a student? Yeah. I I'll share two. Okay. I'll share from my from the regular uh, regular school pupils and mm -hmm. then one from the uh, extension school. Okay. So we have in our regular school. I I have not stopped sharing this story because it's it, it brings me joy. Abdullah is one boy that when they came, like I said, language barrier. But he came in with other children in that set. They were the first set. Mm -hmm. Never been to school. A few days after resumption, the father came to school to fight with our teacher. And um, the case was reported to me. And so how did it all start? How did the problem or the trouble all start? Abdullah and his brothers, his two brothers were in school. And other kids were um, mocking them that they couldn't speak say a word in English that you couldn't write, that they've never been to school. They, You know, it was really intimidating for the children. So I think they went home mm -hmm. and the father came and said, hey, what 
the hell. These kids are here because they do not know. So why make why why make fun of them? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reason why. And for for crying out loud, what do you also know? <laughs> you know, but he didn't say it in a civil way. He just came screaming. Abdullah stood out. When we got our first set of books donated to us from the U.S. Storybooks. Mm-hmm. Abdullah during break. He had been taught. Mm-hmm. You will hear him saying, on his own, a young boy. One day he was doing that and I recorded him. He didn't know. He was dead. He was concentrating 110%. He wasn't aware of his environment. Mm-hmm. He was just trying to blend the words. Abdullah loves books now. He can read at his level and a little bit above his level. He likes to write a lot. So while others are making noise during classes, July is writing and passing notes to his friends. <laughs> so he writes. <laughs> so he, he is not noisy, but he's distracted. Yeah. He's the same thing. But he writes. This was a boy who had, like I said, no, never, never touched the pencil. His handwriting is so beautiful. So a child like July just, it just gives me hope. So when I see new children, new sets of kids, when we absorb new, when we admit new sets, I'm usually not bothered. That, uh, don't worry, they'll get away. There's another one too, Suleiman. The same thing, Suleiman. No, no, no. Even here, Jack. Today, Suleiman is doing so well in primary one. Then going to uh, extension school today, we have Maria. Maria was giving out in marriage last year during the pandemic and we got to know about it we intervened we spoke to the parents we assured the mother that look she said this guy has 150,000 to pay and she doesn't want that money to she doesn't want to lose that money and all of that and uh, we're able to convince her to allow Miriam to to go to school Miriam mm-hmm. is now in TS3 well guess what beyond learning in the government school, Miriam is on our full scholarship. Beyond learning and the Miriam is a beautiful, beautiful artist. Miriam loves to draw. She draws so well. Each time she makes up her face, you think is a pro. She's very good with makeup. She's very good with she's very artistic. She's very good with drawing. Mm-hmm. This was a girl that they were going to marry off at age 16 last year. At 15, she's 16 this year. And she's doing very well in school. She's in the government school. I mean, stories like that also brings me a lot of joy. That we were able to one step in to stop the marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, she's doing well in school she's doing what she loves which is drawing she does a lot of drawing work for at school and um, she's happy and we're happy and of course we have a lot more but this one's stand out that is so uplifting to hear particularly like <laughs> story just how transformative education can be um and is true in a, true. the lives of the next generations um, so we are reaching the end of today's podcast episode before we say goodbye to you, Tosing. 
um we would like to yeah we would like you to take part in our ritual and ask a question that you would like to hear answered by our next podcast guest very simple question how can communities hate education in nigeria communities individuals Mm -hmm. what ways what steps can they take to start something like nfi in different localities okay how can that be done how can that be done on a scale, you know, on a community-wide scale that cuts across the nation because I truly believe that um, government alone can do it. And um, um, profit-making schools alone can also do it because some of these people can afford to go to some of the schools. Mm -hmm. So how can communities build more inclusive um, educational centers, vocational centers, in poor communities in Africa, mm-hmm. but that's not in Nigeria. Okay, thank you for this insightful question. We look forward <laughs> to the answer our next guest will have. Um, thank you so much for your time and valuable insights and just telling us about NFI and what the school has done and just sharing some of the success that you've had in the past like three years that you've been operating. Um, it was a pleasure having you here with and us. And thank you so much for also being part of NFI. I thank had you. so much fun. Thank and you. your parents too. Your parents <laughs> have been very, very supportive of NFI. Your parents have been very, very, very supportive of NFI. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Your family, actually. <laughs> your family has been very supportive. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for just having the school for young Nigerians like like I said before like the next generation that would hopefully bring change in the country our next episode will be online on the 26th of November feel free to always reach out to us on our social media accounts you'll find us under the name equality in business on LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram looking forward to talking to you next week and until then stay healthy and safe